This evening I'd like to talk uh, about specifics of the practice that we were introduced to today. Today was quite a special day in the retreat and perhaps in the history of some of your relationship to the Dzogchen lineage because today Rinpoche gave the what are called the pointing out instructions. I'm just curious, for how many people here was this the first time that you've received the pointing out instructions in Dzogchen? Yeah, quite a number. Thanks. This marks a real turning point in your relationship to the practice and the tradition because it is your formal introduction to the view. And until there's a formal introduction to the view, there's not necessarily a clear understanding of the path because the path and the view are closely related. I'll, I'll come back to that a little later. But this really gives you the experiential basis for all your future practice uh, in this technique, in this part of the Dzogchen instructions. Just one thing to clarify, some people who don't know the Dzogchen practice well might assume that the practice we learn today of Rigpa is synonymous with Dzogchen practice, but actually it's just half of Dzogchen practice. What we learn today is a technique called Trekcho, T-R-E-K-C-H-O, which literally means cutting through. And the idea is that by recognizing the nature of mind, one cuts through conceptual proliferation or grasping. But there's another whole half to uh, Dzogchen practice overall called Togal, which Rinpoche is not going to teach on this retreat, which is very esoteric, and he won't even answer questions about. So we have to shoot you even for hearing this information. (laughs) But... um, don't even bother asking about the other half. Just be aware that the practice that we're doing here is the half of Dzogchen practice called Trekcho. It's actually not easy to get these instructions. Rinpoche will not give them except in a week-long retreat. Many other Dzogchen masters will not give them except in a retreat setting and to practitioners who have completed some degree of preliminary practice, perhaps the Nundro, perhaps other practices. In Tibet, it used to take years of preliminary practice before a teacher would offer the instructions that Rinpoche gave us today. So we're really fortunate to be able to receive them without such a high uh, prerequisite requirement. Rinpoche's father, Toko Urgen Rinpoche, was kind of a pioneer, I think, in this style. When one would meet with uh, Toka Urgen Rinpoche, who is our Rinpoche's father, he would basically ask, are you Buddhist and are you committed? And if you met those two requirements, then he would offer you the pointing out. It was considered very, very generous. But it helped a lot of people. So I think that through the family lineage, Sokni Rinpoche is also inspired to offer them in that way. So we're very fortunate to be able to receive them now. And in a way, it's kind of, there's, a, there's an initiation aspect to what happened for you today. It allows you access to information, teachings, and texts that you might not have had before. This is one text that 
a number of you are very familiar with called The Flight of the Garuda. It's from a Dzogchen master from the 1800s named Lama Shabkar. And this is uh, in the very first page of the book from uh, Dilgokense Rinpoche. Quote, It is the opinion of myself and Dujum Rinpoche that texts such as these should only be shared with people who have received the pointing out transmission from a qualified master. You have now received the pointing out instruction from a qualified master in the Nyingma lineage. So this opens the possibility for you to receive teachings and read texts that weren't previously available to you. So it's a, it's a good day. <laughs> I want to talk about some of the specifics of doing this practice, but before I do, I just want to say, it, 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 in my opinion, it is a hard practice because it's such a subtle practice. And the more subtle the objects get in meditation, the more difficult it is to know if we're doing it properly or not. I have a good friend who's also a Vipassana teacher named Steve Armstrong. In the 1980s, he spent five years in Burma as a monk and practiced very, very diligently. I actually don't know of any practitioners in, in our tradition, Westerners, who practiced more diligently than Steve did. At one point, uh, I think he did almost two straight years of intensive practice. Uh, quite rigorous intensive practice. So at the peak of his effort, he was sleeping just one hour a night. And the rest of the day was sitting and walking, sitting and walking. And he said of this time in his practice that he would fall asleep at night, or probably early in the morning, truth to tell, with a thought in his mind. And when he woke up in the morning the thought would complete itself. That's how little his mind had wandered away during the hour of sleep that he got. Well, when he was in this cycle of uh, deep practice, he went through a series of concentration, shamatha practices that led to the absorptions. And after his teacher had trained him in that through a preliminary means, his teacher recommended that he learn that access through what are called the kasinas. Kasinas are a traditional meditation object found in the Pali Suttas and also in the Vasudhimaga that are basically uh, representations of elements or else colored disks. So you might meditate on white kasina or red kasina, yellow kasina, earth kasina. And Steve was instructed to meditate on blue kasina. But he didn't have a physical disk to generate the image for him. So his instruction was, meditate on blue. That was the only instruction. (laughs) Meditate on blue. So 20 hours a day, meditate on blue. That's a subtle object. (laughs) Because you don't have anything necessarily in your field of experience to call up that image. But when you close your eyes, you're supposed to see blue fix it in your mind, and develop one-pointed concentration on that color. That's a hard practice. But in my opinion, the nature of mind is more subtle than the color blue. So I say that not to discourage you, don't want to discourage you, but I want to give you an appreciation for the challenge that this kind of practice represents. It's not an easy thing to get one's arms around in the beginning. 
But as Rinpoche says, as we continue to connect again and again, it gets very, very uh, easy and simple. So it's something that really grows over time. It's also, as I think Rinpoche said, very, very natural. This is a quote from Suzuki Roshi, who was a great master in the lineage of Soto Zen. Soto Zen is a different practice than Dzogchen, but I think the understanding is, is somewhat similar. And what Suzuki Roshi said was, strictly speaking, for a human being, there is no other practice than this. There is really no other practice than this. So this can apply to a range of practices, but I feel that our Dzogchen practice, as we're learning it here, has that quality too. Remember, Rinpoche mentioned a day or two ago, that Dzogchen doesn't just mean a meditation technique. Fundamentally, it is more than that. The term Dzogpachenpo, he explained, means the great completion, or it's sometimes translated as the great perfection. So this is a statement about the nature of things. It's a pointing to the perfect way that things already are. Every spiritual tradition has this pointing to the perfection in the order of everything, but I feel that the Dzogpa Chenpo way of explaining it is a particularly elegant way to describe it and explain it. So why is that important? It means that all we need to do in the meditation is to rest in the way things are because the way things are is fundamentally complete, perfect, and all right already. So it's not about changing anything about the way things are. It's recognizing that intrinsic perfection, connecting and then resting there. This is the deepest part of each of our minds, it is not missing from the mind of any human being or, in fact, any sentient being. There was a great quote from Huang Po, a Zen master from a long, long time ago, who said that even frogs and all wriggling things are possessed of this Buddha nature. So naturally, each one of us is possessed of this nature of perfection. So the... Meditation practice is just an encouragement to drop any other activity and rest in that dimension, that dimension which is really the the foundation of everything. This is a quote from a Tibetan teacher named uh, Dujum Lingpa in a book whose title I appreciate as much as anything about it. It's called Buddhahood Without Meditation. Isn't that appealing? (laughs) Wouldn't, Wouldn't you love to reach Buddhahood without meditation? And this is just a portion of the quote. He said that this practice, and here's the quote, takes the fundamental nature of reality as the unsurpassable ultimate refuge. I'll read that again. Our practice takes the fundamental nature of reality as the unsurpassable ultimate refuge. What could be safer? What could be more reliable? What could we better put our trust in or our faith? This word faith, 
In Pali is the word sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A. I don't know the Sanskrit equivalent. Does anybody? It's probably something like shadha or something. But shraddha? Shraddha, could be. So in Pali it's sadha, and the etymological origin of that is to place one's heart upon. The source of our faith is what we can really place our heart upon. So this practice is a direct pointing to that which we can really place our heart upon, really rest in, something that will always hold us and always be there for us. Of course, it's important to understand the meaning of the word reality in a Buddhist context because it's different than the Western scientific context. If you ask somebody on the street, what is reality? They'll point to physical reality. You know, the earth, the trees, the sky. That's physical reality. And that's, in the Western view, that's the ultimate reality. If you think about it, this is true. This is what Westerners assume is the ultimate truth of things, that matter came first in the universe out of the Big Bang, and then matter did different things, and eventually some of it collected, and then some water formed, and then chemicals got struck by lightning, and then there was conscious life. That's the Western view. And the Western view is that we take birth in this physical world, and only then do we exist. So it's here and enduring. We come into it, and we're part of the reality for a while, but when we die, we're, we're out of it. And really, we don't, we don't necessarily continue. That's kind of the Western scientific worldview. So it takes physical world as, as reality and ultimate reality. But what, what's missing, of course, is the element of consciousness. The physical world is only an appearance in our consciousness. So... In Buddhism, reality means our human experience. So that's what we're looking at. That's the field we're looking at, our human experience. So I think that this is largely a practice of faith and trust. Ajahn Sumedho is a great uh, teacher in the Theravadan tradition. He's an American monk who lives in England. He was teaching here a few years ago, and he said, I think the main problem with Western meditators is not that they don't try hard enough. They try plenty hard. The problem is they don't trust enough. He said, we don't trust ourselves, and we don't trust our experience in meditation and in life. The sense of self-doubt or self-judgment is so strong that we don't validate our experience. We criticize it too easily. And then in that way, we kind of pull the rug out from under our own faith and trust. So this path that was unfolded today is a a profound path. Of it, Tolka Urgen Rinpoche said, the way to be enlightened is to train in recognizing mind essence and stabilize in the recognition. This is the very way to be enlightened. To train in recognizing mind essence and stabilize in the recognition. 
This is very different from the Theravadan model that underlies Vipassana, where you're supposed to have four different uh, moments of enlightenment, where the mind comes into Nibbana, let's say at different depths, and each time different of the fetters are uprooted. And when all the fetters are uprooted, then the mind has become purified. So there are clearly different experiences along the way. Latoka Urgen Rinpoche is saying that we can become enlightened through recognizing mind essence and learning to stabilize in it. Now think about that. That's a very appealing prospect. It means that the way is pretty clear for us. It means that there don't necessarily have to be these very unusual kind of altered experiences, although some of them undoubtedly would come. But it's another model of a way to be free. And in this model, the freedom comes at the start of the journey. When we connect with mind essence, nature of mind, Rigpa, we're connecting with something in us that's already free. And then we're learning to be there more and more of the time. In fact, this is a quote from Reginald Ray, who's a Western teacher of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. He said, the tantras in general, the Vajrayana path, takes awakened mind as the vehicle for the path. That's a beautiful concept. As I mentioned the other day, in the Theravadan, we start off looking at the defilements and mustering as many wholesome forces as we can to uh, transform them. But in the tantras of the Vajrayana, the very basis for the path is the awakened mind. Now, what do you do when you're not awakened yet? You imitate it as best you can or you approximate it as best you can, or you make your best stab at touching it or realizing it in this moment. In my opinion, that's basically what our practice of Rigpa is. It's our attempt to find the awakened mind right now and then rest in it. So I want to share with you some of kind of my own experiences and perceptions in the development of this practice. But before I do, you know, I have to put out a big disclaimer. I'm not a Dzogchen teacher. I'm a Vipassana teacher. I'm not qualified to be a Dzogchen teacher. I'm not authorized to be a Dzogchen teacher. I don't ever plan to be a Dzogchen teacher. But from early on, when I would sit these retreats with Rinpoche, he just encouraged me to share from my experience in the, in the evenings, uh, during the retreats when I was a yogi. So uh, please take this not as any authoritative pronouncement, but just as sharing from a fellow practitioner. And if you find it helpful, all well and good. If you don't find it helpful, you're welcome to discard it. If I say something wrong, I hope you'll forgive me. Um, because this is not my area of of authority or expertise. Uh, So just trying to clarify some of the things that I've learned along the way. So, what I heard Rinpoche say today 
is that he was introducing to us a new technique for practice that was beyond shamatha and beyond shamatha with, with or without support and beyond vipassana, which was the practice of four elements, look, see, rest, and liberate. Of those, the practice of look, he said, is clearly a technique. It's clearly fabricated. It involves effort. It involves will. It involves concept. All those elements that Rigpa in the end transcends are there present in the first step of the technique, which is the looking. The other interesting thing is, I think he mentioned this too, look, see, rest, liberate is about it as far as technique goes in this practice. Now, Vipassana yogis, how many practices of breath have you received over the years? Twelve? Twenty? Two dozen? Any number, and that's not even to include the body and sounds and so many other practices and techniques within Vipassana. Within this approach, there's basically one. So you'll be hearing a lot about it. We went, uh, some friends and I went to see Tolka Urgen Rinpoche uh, in Kathmandu a little over 10 years ago. It was toward the end of his life. But I'm very glad that, that we went because he was such a special teacher. We met him at his monastery at that time, Nagi Gompa, outside of Kathmandu. And he gave us the Dzogchen teachings and pointing out over several days that we visited with him. So we were meeting with him for a few hours at a time over several days. And at some point in there, he said, when you come to me for teachings, I'm going to be like a field mouse. You know, when a field mouse runs across the field and makes a sound, he only knows one sound to make. And that is, squeak. (laughs) Every time you see the field mouse, it's always, squeak, squeak. So when you come to me, I'm only going to be making one sound. And his squeak was, recognize mind essence. So that was the sole instruction over and over again. You get to long Dzogchen texts like this, and it's a bit like the Prajnaparamita Sutras. They find many, many creative ways to say the same thing and point you back uh, to the same direction, but it's this central direction again and again. So, the look is fabricated. Rinpoche offered three ways today to do the look. And as I remind you of what those were, I'm going to turn off the mic because this should not be recorded. Uh, So I'll just project my voice a little more. If anyone is listening to the tape, know that there will be some seconds of silence. The first of the pointing out, is it gone? Another one was uh, the sense of drop. Letting go and dropping, exhaling. And another one was the hand going up the sleeve. (laughs) 
So these are all somewhat evocative. Tomorrow night I'm going to offer a bunch more different ways to do look. You can be creative in how you want to look. And I'll go through that tomorrow night. I don't think I want to get into it tonight because it's a fairly long list. But I feel that the more different ways you have to look, uh, the greater potential you'll have to find one that suits you. And I find that I'll use one technique for a while and it'll be very uh, evocative, very juicy. I'll apply it and the C will be strong. You know, that result of the looking will be strong. And as I keep using it and using it and using it, I use up its magic power a little bit. And then I look again and nothing happens. And then I think, oh, I'll try another one. So I'll try another one. I'll use that for a while. And then it gets juicy again. I'll use that, but then I'll use it up. And then I'll, go, I'll probably go back to the first one. Or if I want, I'll go to the, another one. So I usually have about three different ways to do look. And I'll just vary them depending on which one is most effective. One of the things that I heard in the group interview today, and I think in, in here also, is that different individuals found different of the techniques useful for themselves. For some people, drop was useful. For other people, uh, Toko Ergen's method was useful. For other people, the third was useful. So it's good to have a range so that you can try different things and, and see what's working for you. So we do this bit of looking in whatever technique we want to use, and the next step is to see. Then somewhere in between the look and the see, something has to happen. And that is the effort has to fall away. This doesn't always happen so naturally. As Rinpoche mentioned, if there's hope and fear around it, that'll constitute a form of effort that will block the clear seeing. He used that analogy of trying to create some space by putting something in between the fingers, but then you have to get rid of the something that was in between. That's the effort or the fabrication. So in other retreats, what he said is that between look and see, we need to have a little miracle. And that is the dropping of effort. There's no way to make that happen. But what really helps that little miracle to happen is relaxation and trust. So every time you approach look, Check that there's that sense of relaxation. And look and see if you're willing to trust. And trust in this case basically means once you look, take what you get. Take what you get as being what you see. It's very easy in the early stages of doing this practice to get really worried. Did I get it? Didn't I get it? Did I get the real thing? Did I get the fake thing? Is this an ordinary experience or is this something really extraordinary that I'm looking for? I just don't know what this Rigpa stuff is all about. These questions are natural when we start a new meditation practice. I found them when I started Vipassana. I found them when I started Metta practice. I found them when I started this practice. But there's a word in our tradition 
for these kinds of questions when they really bind us up. And that word is doubt. It's one of the five hindrances that the Buddha pointed to. The antidote to doubt is faith. And you know what happens when doubt is uppermost in your mind, is dominating your mind, is that it blocks you from actually putting your full conviction into your effort because you don't know that it will lead anywhere. But you need to proceed as though you are sure it's going to lead somewhere. Sharon Salzberg went to practice loving-kindness meditation intensively for the first time with Saidao Upandita, a Burmese master in Rangoon. And at the start of her session, in one of the early interviews, he asked her, are you confident you can do this practice? What do you say to your teacher at that point? If you say yes, you risk looking a little arrogant, don't you? But if you say no, that indicates some vacillation. So I think Sharon said something like, I think so. And Upandita said, you should always be really confident. When you start a new practice, you should always be extremely confident. That gives you the best chance of success with the practice. So please recognize that when these kinds of questions come, if they undermine your confidence, this is the hindrance of doubt. Try to recognize it as doubt, try to let it go, try to reestablish your trust and reapply the technique. Sometimes doubt comes from really good questions. Someone mentioned today in a group interview, well, this cognizant stuff that is being talked about as, as you know, the ground and ongoing and unborn and unceasing, uh, I was taught that consciousness is impermanent. It's one of the five aggregates, and all the aggregates are impermanent. So how can this knowing be a lasting quality? This is a really good question. This is the question that uh, drove me crazy for a few years <laughs> until I resolved it to my satisfaction. And I'm going to explain that in a few more nights, but I don't want to do it tonight. <laughs> it's good to let this question bug you for a while. Because it's when we investigate these questions that really mean something to us, we gain our own conviction in our practice. You, know, you arrive at your own truth to answer and resolve these kinds of questions. So this is a very good question, and it's an important one to chew on. But I want to just give a temporary kind of stopgap answer to this. Ajahn Sumedha was teaching here a few years ago, and he teaches a Theravadan practice which puts the emphasis on this same kind of quality of awareness as the undying, uh, the empty awareness as the undying. So I raised the same question to Ajahn Sumedho. I said, you're talking about awareness as the undying, but in the text, it always talks about consciousness as impermanent. How do you reconcile those two? He said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, what I know is that this really worked for me. And that's what I would encourage you to try. This concept that you can always tune into the quality of awareness, that it, the quality of awareness is ever-present, 
That feels true, doesn't it? Because it takes a very subtle awareness in order to see the appearing and disappearing of consciousness. It takes a lot of concentration and a lot of mindfulness to be able to see that. So our ordinary experience is, yeah, it really feels like awareness is ongoing. So let yourself connect with that feeling. We're not saying it's the ultimate truth right now. We'll clarify that maybe in a few days. But we're saying <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a real benefit to trusting in this feeling. Because it gives us a ref. if nothing else, it gives us a refuge from all the flux of impermanence that's going on around us. Phenomena are coming and going, thoughts are coming and going, emotions are coming and going, grasping is coming and going. Here's something that's not touched by that. Awareness is always present. So at least use that as a temporary refuge while we clarify the philosophy in a few more days. And see if it's not helpful as a skillful means. So, when you look, the next step is to see, and then it's important to trust what comes when you see. This is a very important point. Rinpoche was demonstrating this today with the Palm Pilot in the napkin. You won't find these in the ancient text, but (laughs) it's a great analogy. So, I just want to review again these two aspects because he covered it a couple of days ago. The palm pilot represents the ground. And recall that the ground has three components which are inseparable, which is the essence, which is empty, the nature, which is cognizance, and the capacity which is said to be unconfined. Now this third one he hasn't talked a lot about. Um, there's, there's more description of, of all these in Carefree Dignity, which is a transcript of talks from a retreat several years earlier. In those retreats, because the Sangha was newer, Rinpoche was giving more detailed descriptions of these basic components of the teachings. So this is a wonderful reference book to have. It has a lot of the material that he will cover in this retreat and explained in a little bit more detail. So if you read about capacity and carefree dignity, he basically explains it as the mind's ability to flower with beautiful qualities. Sometimes it's talked about as the mind's ability to be ceaselessly responsive. It's sometimes described as unceasing compassionate activity, meaning that when we are resting in the union of essence and nature, which is emptiness and cognizance, that frees the heart in such a way that compassion or wisdom or loving kindness or patience, any of the beautiful qualities can easily flower. So the capacity when we know the nature and the essence combined is unlimited, this capacity of the mind. That's the way it's described in in Carefree Dignity. The capacity is something that is a little more subtle, I think, to intuit. So what I'm going to suggest is that as you play around with the aspects of, of ground, you look particularly for the first two. 
You know, look particularly and, and make sure you understand clearly the essence, which is empty, and the nature, which is cognizance. Once you have a really good intuitive sense of these two, I think the capacity will be more obvious. So, when I first started looking in this way, I would look, and then I was supposed to see, let's just take it as a simple, you know, simple form, emptiness and awareness conjoined, inseparable, indivisible. I hadn't really done the reflection on emptiness that Rinpoche has talked about as being the Vipassana piece of their training. So I got to this quality of emptiness and I was kind of lost. What am I supposed to see when I see emptiness? I didn't get it. Awareness I could get, right? I'm not a bump on a log, things are happening, I'm not asleep, right, I got the awareness part. But I didn't get the emptiness for a while. So I had to do lots of reflection. When I would turn and see, I had to examine what does emptiness mean? Now, as soon as you start examining and reflecting, you're not in Rigpa. So I had to, I had to give it up at times while I clarified these questions. And you may need to also. If you look and you're not sure what emptiness means in your experience, even though then it's not doing Rigpa, I encourage you to investigate until you find out. Maybe it means we do a little Vipassana practice on the way to doing true Rigpa practice. But until each of us has a real clear sense of what emptiness is and what cognizance is, in a very familiar way, we won't really recognize mind essence. We need to get to the stage where we've touched these things with our understanding, our intellectual understanding, enough times that when it's there in our experience, we recognize it like an old friend. You know, when you're getting to know somebody for the first time, I say somebody's name is Linda, and the first time you meet, you're introduced, this is Linda. And the next time you see Linda, that name may not pop immediately to mind. And you don't, you don't know her very well. So you have to remind yourself, oh, that's Linda. I met her a week ago. She works at such and such a place. And the third time you meet her, maybe her name pops to mind immediately, but you don't quite remember all the personality. And then little by little, after seeing Linda a lot of times, when she walks into view, you know, your heart kind of comes out with a recognition, and you don't have to say anything. You don't have to say her name or where you met her or all the things you've done together or any of that. It's just you know her. This is the kind of familiarity we need to get with the union of uh, emptiness and cognizance. We need to touch it enough times and know it intellectually so that soon when we start touching it, we don't have to think at all. We just recognize, oh, that's it. Then the concepts can really go out of C. C doesn't then have to be conceptual. So, what does emptiness mean in our experience? I would suggest three avenues of investigation if you find you need to investigate to find out what this means for you. One is the analogy that's often used in Dzogchen practice, which is that uh, analogy of awareness or cognizance or the nature of mind 
as being like vast space. So in that analogy, you get the sense that the vastness of space includes everything. It includes the sun and the moon and the stars and the planet Earth and people and frogs and raindrops. That's all within the vastness of space. Yet it doesn't make space any smaller. It doesn't take away from the nature of space that it has those contents. So in the same way, our awareness contains all those things. Just as space is empty, and that's the only way it could contain all those things, our awareness is similarly empty. Or it couldn't contain all the arisings of the phenomenal world. So there's a sense that within our awareness, nothing is stuck. Nothing is kind of there from the beginning that never goes out. No thing, no solid thing is there from the beginning. This analogy with space is a good way to get the sense, a sense of emptiness. Now within that emptiness, there are two other avenues to explore. As I mentioned, I think in the talk on, maybe this is the Mahayana, the understanding of emptiness needs to include two aspects. The emptiness of self, what is called anatta in the Theravadan teachings, or anatman in Sanskrit, the absence of any enduring center within this stream of mental and physical phenomena. And the second aspect is the emptiness of objects, which basically means the insubstantial nature of the phenomenal world. That even though things look solid, like this wood, it's not really. If you haven't explored the emptiness of objects a lot, let me just say that sounds and body sensations are usually easy ways to first see the emptiness because of their very transitory nature. You see that the body is only a flux of vibrations and sounds are just passing through very, very quickly. The hardest sense door to break down is sight. Sight. The sense of sight is hard to see emptiness in, and so is the sense of touch. So just one little suggestion with sight, and I'll stop there. Recall that the sight of this room is occurring because light particles, photons, are striking the back of your eye, which is the retina. That triggers a nerve impulse through the optic nerve that goes up and stimulates certain regions in the brain, And that brain activity is generating the visual image that we see in front of us. We're not actually seeing the wall or the tanka. We're seeing a representation our brain has made of the light that has hit our eyes reflected off those objects. Who knows what's really there? (laughs) I don't. So this whole world that we live in and move in and feel so familiar with and have assigned all kinds of names to is only a generation of our nervous system, our sense doors, and our consciousness, our human consciousness. And yet we take it as solid and real. That's the illusion. 
So, you can play with the sense of touch also. This is not solid. It is only the experience, the touch sensation of hardness. That's all it is. But the touch sensation of hardness also comes and goes. So, you need to be familiar with um, ways to arrive at emptiness through these three aspects. That the nature of mind is like an empty sky. That there is no abiding self within the mind-body process. And that all phenomenal appearances are insubstantial. Then, what you want to see is that awareness and this emptiness are not two separate things. But this is one unity. Rinpoche used to say in his retreats, what do we mean by mind? And he would say, mind is that which knows. And he just means knowing first on the bare level of sense data. You know, knowing gets more sophisticated, but just the bare level of sense data knows light and sound and smell and taste and touch. So that mind is what is like an empty space, empty sky. But unlike space, it has this quality of cognizance. Space doesn't have it. You know, this space right here is not connected to a nervous system and a brain that generates sense impressions. This mind somehow is. So it's important to see that this is one thing. Mind is one thing. Or we could say nature of mind is one thing. But it's not an ordinary kind of thing. It's not the kind of thing that can be grasped. It's not the kind of thing that can be located anywhere in space because it creates space and creates time. It's the context in which space and time happen. So it can't be grasped the way an ordinary thing is grasped, but what Rinpoche has been saying is that it can know itself. Because of the cognizant nature, it is self-knowing. So it knows itself as cognizance and emptiness. So these two aspects we want to see. But be aware that one thing, it's just one thing. It's not two things. It's just like this bowl. Is it round or is it gold? Yes. Good. The answer is yes. It's just one thing, but it has two aspects that can be discriminated. So the nature of mind is like that. It's just one thing. There aren't two minds running around, one of which is empty and the other of which is knowing. (laughs) There's only one mind and it has these two aspects. And that's what we need to get familiar with. Okay, so remember that really it has three aspects. If we say two, that's just a shorthand as we're learning. Really it has three, but in the near term, just worry about the first two. So, this is the ground, the union of uh, empty essence, natural clarity, uh, compassionate capacity. When we drop effort and we look toward the nature of mind, toward awareness itself, then what comes back, if we're clear, 
is the view. The non-conceptual view. The conceptual view is the understanding that the nature of mind is these three aspects. That's a conceptual view. The non-conceptual view is your direct experience of this unity. So when you look and you see that nature, that's the view. Now, we're not fully enlightened, so we don't see the whole ground. And this is the, you know, the napkin covering the Palm Pilot. We all have napkins over our Palm Pilots right now. <laughs> so even when we try hard to look, we don't see the whole ground. We just see that first edge of it. That edge of the ground is our own experience of the view. That's as much of the view as we get today when we do the looking as best we can, given our background, our temperament, our paramis, our unfolding up to this point, we get this little bit of the ground. That is the view for us. And that's okay. Just trust in that. Whatever experience you had when you were told to look and Rinpoche guided you in the looking, Go with that. Trust in that. Put your chips on that. Because that's what's going to take you further into the ground. The beautiful thing about the practice is that the view develops over time. It's not that the view you, you reach today is the view that will be with you forever. More and more of the ground gets exposed as the obscurations thin. So the view is, a, is an evolving element in practice. Even though non-conceptually it's these three things, the degree to which we actually see it and feel it and know it opens up, opens up, opens up over the course of our practice. So don't worry if it seems weak today or if you're not quite sure you see all three aspects or you're not even sure if that's it. Take what you get. Trust in that and it will evolve. It will evolve. Medi this meditation works just like gravity works. When the apple is ripe, it falls from the tree. That's a natural law. As you turn to the ground, whatever bit of it you can see, it purifies the obscurations. And that means the view opens up more and more and more as you practice. Okay, last thing I want to say, really practical tip, is about eyes open versus eyes closed. Um, this is a good time for all the practitioners, especially Vipassana practitioners, to start working more with opening the eyes. I know this is risky business. <laughs> because when we open the eyes as Vipassana practitioners, we risk losing our inner peace. <laughs> but really, we don't want inner peace to be tied to closed eyes, do we? Because when we go back into the world, we want to be able to have inner peace with eyes open. So this is a good laboratory for exploring inner peace with eyes open. In doing the Rigpa practice, Rinpoche recommended today to do it with eyes open. Now, what happened for me when I started opening my eyes in doing this practice was I got a big jolt of energy. With my eyes closed, I was much calmer. Oh, it felt so good. 
Then I'd open my eyes and my body would tense up and I'd feel like I was overwhelmed by too much energy. So, Rinpoche is not dogmatic on this point. If you feel that you need to uh, calm down a little bit, that the energy is too much, it's okay to close your eyes for a while. It's okay to go back to shamatha with support, shamatha without support, breath meditation, choiceless attention, connect with objects again. That's fine. And then when you feel a little bit more calm, open your eyes and try the look, see, rest practice again. So you can feel free to go back and forth. He said that today. Go back and forth between these. You can also play with, as you're opening your eyes a little bit, where you put your gaze. We talked about this in the interview group this afternoon. Lower the gaze, the energy goes down a little bit. So if you're feeling tired and you want to pick up the energy, raise the gaze somewhat. So play with that as a variable in how much uh, energy you're introducing. There's a famous statue of Padmasambhava, the founder of the, the Dzogchen lineage in Tibet, which shows his gaze very high, I mean above horizontal, quite above horizontal, and his eyes wide open, you know, almost popping out of the statue. And that's considered a very good gaze for Dzogchen. But we may not be ready yet for that amount of energy. So you can approach it gradually. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.